Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We are experiencing some turbulence. Uh, I'd appreciate it if you'd uh, remain in your seats and uh, keep your seat belts fastened until um, I turn off the fasten seat belt sound. Thank you very much. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. My father woke us up probably 5, 36 o'clock in the morning, and we drove to Santa Monica Airport. It was cloudy and kind of a gloomy day. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio that falls from the sky right into our laps. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. The temperature would have been plummeting fast, the oxygen in the air would have becoming less and less. Everything got really dark. I mean, we were now in the heart of some sort of storm. I wonder whether at that point he realized that he'd made a terrible mistake, that there was no way out. Hello, police emergency. We come across what looks like a, a dead body. At one time, human flight was the stuff of crazy dreamers. But these days, we board planes, fasten our seatbelts, and locate our nearest exit every day hurling ourselves through the air at 600 miles per hour and don't give it another thought. Statistically, it is the safest way to travel, but everyone knows that when flights fail, they fail big. Today on ReSound, failure of flight. In one story, a man mysteriously falls from the sky onto a sunny London street, and in another, a plane crashes into a mountainside and an 11-year-old walks away. Stay tuned. Some people have a burning desire to do. If there's a mountain to climb, a wave to ride, a hill to ski, they go at it full throttle, heaving themselves up a rock sheer, down a slope, or into a wave on an angry ocean. When that person is your dad and you're just 11, that can mean getting dragged hither and yon at a moment's notice. In 1979, Norman Olstead was that 11-year-old, joining his dad on another great but risky adventure when something went horribly awry. In the chaos that ensued, Olstead discovered that he had inherited his father's grit, determination, and moxie. My father... Woke us up probably 5, 36 o'clock in the morning. So it was my father, his girlfriend, Sandra, and myself, and we drove to Santa Monica Airport. It was cloudy and kind of a gloomy day. My father asked the pilot if it was okay to fly, and he said, no problem. It should be a smooth, easy flight. A few minutes into the flight, I did notice out the windshield in the distance that there was like a layer of gray clouds that were pretty thick and covering mountains. And you could see a little bit of the mountaintop sticking out of the top of the cloud. Well, a few minutes after that, there was some transmissions back and forth about the weather. I mean, I was only 11, but I didn't know that what the other side was saying to the plane meant something to look out for. And it was interesting that he just ignored it. 
but he's the pilot. My dad was reading the sports section in the back and chomping on an apple. And then everything got really dark. I mean, we were now in the heart of some sort of storm. We were bouncing around. You couldn't see anything, and there was fog mixed with it. Then I did see out my side window or maybe the corner of the windshield what I thought was a limb of a tree's green kind of shape kind of popped through the fog. When I saw the tree the second time, then I knew we were screwed. I mean, I knew we were going to crash into the trees. And that's when I saw the pilot. There's a trim wheel that's down below the knee level, and he was, like, spinning it and trying to steer. And I remember I almost, you know, I was going to reach out and try to help him spin it. And then I turned and yelled to my dad, watch out. And I curled up, and I felt three thuds. Boom, boom, boom. And then I woke up. My name is Norman Olstead. I grew up on Topanga Beach in the late 60s, early 70s, or through the 70s, really. Doctors and lawyers and surf bums and drug dealers and every kind of crazy type of dreamer, musicians and artists, they all lived on this beach together. Surfed and danced and rode horses and painted. And it was a little paradise. My dad was more straight-laced, kind of 50s guy, the law degree, FBI agent, yet he was surfing every morning before going into the Justice Department when he worked for Bobby Kennedy. He kept doing that when he was a lawyer and uh, surfing after. And on the weekends, playing poker on the beach with all these crazy dudes. He often told me, you know, don't worry about what you're supposed to do and what doing one thing means. Just do it all. And I had this dream that I was floating upside down and my van shoes were going towards this light, kind of granular light. I realized that I was dying and so I kind of like clawed myself out of that dream. I woke up, I couldn't breathe and my seatbelt was kind of choking me and I flicked open the seatbelt. The seat got sort of torn out of the plane with me in the seatbelt. I called out for my dad for a while. The fog was pretty thick. It was, you know, right against the mountain, right into my face. And there was a lot of swirling snow. But I did notice something, a piece of the plane, part of the instrument panel that was kind of broken up in front of me, slid away, you know, as if through a trap door. And I, I understood that I was on a steep, icy slope. I had Vans tennis shoes. I had tighter racing ski pants that they had in the 70s and a little uh, ski sweater on. And I didn't have a hat or gloves or anything. I didn't have the right gear. Apparently it was like 10 degrees. At some point, uh, I, I heard Sandra crying in my brain. So I made my way towards her voice and she was above me and a little bit across.
across the slope. It was very hard to move. I was slipping and sliding. When I first moved away from the plane, I saw the pilot. He was thrashed. He was beat up. He was sprawled out. His legs were laying funny, like only a dead person's legs could lay. And then his head is like busted open. He got really hammered. I made my way over to Sandra. She was whimpering and crying out and um, sort of hysterical. She wasn't wearing the right clothes at all. I mean, she had these kind of fancy leather boots on and a sweater and jeans, I think. And she had like a big wound in her forehead and it was cold to it, sort of froze the blood. And I couldn't see my dad anywhere. I eventually made my way back towards my seat where I had started. That's when I saw my father. From the beginning on Topanga Beach, you know, I'd be laying in my bed and there was these, this wooden outdoor walkway and I could hear my dad coming down that walkway. Usually it was still dark. He liked the crack of dawn. I just wanted to sleep and then he'd come in and rustle me up and he'd say, uh, it's been raining all night and snowing up in Mount Waterman, let's go. And so he'd get in his little white 356 1965 Porsche and go up to Mount Waterman where there's a full blizzard. The face of it would get real icy and really hard to ski. We'd ski that face a lot. I hated that. I hated most of what we did. <laughs> that there was glimmers of beauty and just great times, but most of it was, I don't know, a lot of work. I was into playing. The more meaningless, the better. <laughs> was behind my seat and the sort of the crown of his head was sort of pressed up against the back of my seat and I shook him and uh, you know spoke to him he uh, he never responded I tried to lift him up and his head was kind of down between his knees he was just kind of hunched forward I couldn't get any leverage to lift him up and I couldn't lean down too much just because it was slippery and icy on that side. The summer before in Mexico, we were going down there to visit my grandparents, and I remember it was really hot, and I asked him, you know, what happens when you boil to death? Because <laughs> the Mexican sun could be really hot. It was like August or something. I think he said something, you just, you get thirsty and dry and... You know, it's, it's ugly, kind of an ugly death. You really feel it. And I said, well, what happens if you freeze to death? And he said, well, I think you, you forget how cold you are. You get tired. You just kind of go to sleep and you don't wake up. And so we decided we'd rather freeze to death. I, from like the third person point of view, saw myself under the wing just asleep there, curled up with Sandra. 
and thought, well, you'll never wake up. And so I crawled out of that. It's the only way I can describe it. You're just like crawling out of sleep. It's hard to wake up. But I woke her up and I said, we can't fall asleep. At one point, the, the storm took a break and I heard a helicopter and I went out. And I remember the helicopter came right above me. I mean, I could see like the helmet, I want to say, like the helmet of the pilot. I waved at them and yelled and screamed, and then they flew away. And not long after that, I mean, it was kind of almost like on cue, the storm, like the second wave came. It was like windier, and there was more snow than ever before, and it was just like thrashing. And I, I said, okay, now we gotta go. And she was saying, we gotta stay and wait. And I said, no, we'll fall asleep, we're gonna freeze, we'll never make it through the night. Then I wanted to go over there and give it one more shot. You know, it was tough, especially in the wind, and you couldn't really see, and it was just disorienting. I remember going and checking and whispering in his ear and shaking him again. I don't have a memory of seeing his face. It wasn't like this definitive thing. I guess because it was just kind of inconceivable didn't register. I did say to him, maybe it was just a thought, but I, I think I said it to him that we're gonna, I was going to go down and get help. We drove down the Baja Peninsula in this pickup truck, and we ended up getting stuck in mud and ended up having to spend a couple days in this little fishing village where there happened to be some really good surf. Somehow I ended up out there in these waves that were a little bigger and stronger and just fiercer. And somehow I found my way into a wave, made the bottom turn and was inside this incredible tube. Everything went quiet for a second. I was at the center of the universe. You're in the middle of this energy force that can crush you, yet Somehow you've tamed it and you're sitting inside it. You've sort of broken it. And then a few feet ahead, there's this oval opening and you can see out, you can see a glimpse of the beach or a palm tree or, and sort of the bend of the swell extending out ahead of you. And when I came out, there was my father smiling, a huge smile, arms raised, I finally got Sandra out and I had broken off some small twigs, just something to stab into the snow. That's when the skin started coming off my first knuckle and my hands, they weren't working that well. So I got below her. So we were able to kind of get on her stomachs. I got below her, showed her how to use the stick. And as we moved a foot here, six inches there, a foot there, the bank funneled us towards the middle, towards the part of the slope I wanted to avoid because I could tell that was sort of a slick area. At some point we both just kind of slipped down that embankment into the worst part. But on that side, rocks started to sort of come out. So I was able to kind of like use my foot to kind of stop us against those rocks. 
I kind of hit the rock and then she just kind of crashed onto me. Her like heels and just the sole of her thing was on the top of my head, on my shoulders. I was just kind of under her using the stick. It was intense. And that was a very intense phase of this whole descent. We were in the worst part of the shoot. She's kind of losing it and physically I could feel she just wasn't committed to staying with it and I think probably because she had that injury and she had a dislocated shoulder. She had separated from me. I got too low. She was a few feet above me and um, I remember trying to coax her down to me because I couldn't go up and uh, she sort of sat up or tried to get her upper body up. She just sort of tipped over like a windshield wiper. And I reached out. She kind of just toppled over me. Not standing up, but just kind of sideways rolling, sliding right over me. I wasn't able to grab her. I, I misjudged sort of where she was gonna go. And she just kept sliding and she disappeared into the fog. There, there was that sort of split emotion of I made her go down and I missed her when I tried to grab her. And yet now look how fast I can move compared. I mean, I could move now. And I remember slipping and sliding really good and scraping my stomach and my back as my sweater was coming up and sliding on and just digging in and digging in and the snow was softening and the, and the slope was getting milder there and I was able to kind of come I was, to halt my slide. Fingers are completely numb, my feet are completely numb. Uh, I remember feeling tired, you know, and kind of beat up coming to a halt and sitting there and how long is this going to go? And there was a like kind of a rock wall and I, I remember getting next to it and then finding her, her blood trail and working my way down towards those trees and that's where I found her body. Her eyes were open. I remember looking, she had these big blue eyes wide open but she had brown eyes but I you know that's that's how I remember she had these big blue eyes and they were like wide open strange I broke off a lot of tree limbs and I tried to cover her as much as I could just in case because her eyes were open so I figured well if her eyes are open she, maybe she's not dead I didn't know you could have your eyes open and be dead I left there and it enters a kind of valley. And that part, I sat on my butt. For the first time, I could just slide down the mountain. I didn't have to work, I didn't have to cling, I didn't have to do anything. And it was just incredible relief. It's almost like a, a, a little bit of a high. And I remember I would stick the, the little twig in and make turns, kind of like slalom turns, like I was racing it. And partway through that experience, I, I had something like, this is not the time to be playful. It was just seemed so inappropriate and strange. When I was making my way through this kind of like giant shale, it was kind of, they weren't really like boulders, they were like sharp pieces of rock. 
and the snow was really sticky in between. I was slipping, and I think I saw from that vantage point, I saw the meadow. And so I started to move towards that meadow, and all of a sudden I just fell through the snow. Literally up to my neck. What happens there is that the snow builds up on top of this buckthorn bush, and then it gives you a false sense of a floor. You know, you think you're walking on ground covered snow. You're just walking on the top of these bushes, and you fall through, and they have thorns, and you get caught. That was where I was stuck for a long... I mean, it felt like I was stuck there for an hour. I couldn't have been. It was probably a half hour. And when I got to the meadow, I just collapsed. I remember just... And I was so... I was kind of... I, I was angry, you know. I all came out there. It's just everything, you know, the mountain, the storm, being cold, and, you know, death, and all the violence. And I couldn't find my way out of the meadow. And that's when I saw footprints. My name's Evan Chapman. I, I'm my family's lived up here since uh, 1901, and it was early in the morning. I remember my mother waking me up. My brother and I were sound asleep. I guess we were about 11, 10 or 11 years old. And my mom came in and woke us up. And she said, I just heard a plane crash. We're going to go look. And I remember it being a really dreary day. It was overcast, cloudy, cold. It had snowed. There's a meadow up just at the base of the mountain. And we followed her all the way up to the high meadow through the brush and the snow. It was wet and miserable, and we started calling and yelling. You know, hello, hello. Nothing. We come back down, and that afternoon, we didn't pay much attention until the helicopter showed up. Now, I don't remember seeing the footprints in, in the meadow. It was like on the edge, and I started following them, and just scraping my way through under. I mean, they, they knew a way through this stuff. I don't, you know, it was amazing, actually. As I was scrambling down, getting closer, I started screaming, actually. Or maybe I heard Glenn Farmer scream. Uh, maybe I yelled out, help, or maybe somebody yelled out, hey, is anybody there? I can't remember now. But he remembers. Hello? Hello, hello? Hello, how are you? Good, how are you doing? You look oh. good. Yeah, you too, man. Hey. God, I haven't seen you on being in ages. How are you doing? My name is uh, Glenn Farmer, and uh, I grew up in Mount Baldy, and there was a burger bar there, and I had a girlfriend that worked flipping burgers. And so I was hanging out there, you know, just being a teenager, and some rescue trucks pulled up. And so being a curious kid, I walked over, and it's like, so, you know, what's going on? And they said, oh, there's a plane crash up there. I overheard them say, it's going to take us four hours to get up there. And I'm just being a rambunctious kid, and I was like, well, it'll take four hours to get up there. So I went down to my house, got my dog, and I went south of the village around Chapman Ranch and was hiking up. Can't really see the ridge from here. I'd walk, you know, 50 yards and, and yell hello and, and walk 50 yards hello, and I thought, well, I'm just going to give up on it. And one last time, and there's like this voice in my head says, yell one more time. I mean, for a second, I thought I was making it up, or it was my own echo, because it echoes up there. When you responded, I didn't know if it was the same thing. It was like, am I hearing myself? Bam, I get a response, and that's when I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> 
I remember the dog and then just seeing you come around the corner. You know, I started almost like running. I remember we ran into you and I told you what had happened. I do remember becoming conscious of my fingers because you were staring at my fingers. His knuckles were down to his, I mean, down to the bone. He'd worn the skin off and you were getting pretty exhausted. So that's why I just lifted him up because I was like, you want me to carry? And he said, no. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I'm like, no. And then you just picked me up. And I was like, oh, it felt so good. It felt so good to be off my feet. I remember looking back up at the mountain. You could, you could see, you couldn't see the top, but you could just see the mountain starting to stretch up into the fog and clouds. And that's, you know, I thought my dad's up there. That thing got my dad, you know. It was the first time I really admitted that he was dead. Yeah. I remember that. And so we started walking down the road and that's when we came down, we're down near the bottom, and then Mr. and Mrs. Chapman were walking up, Evan's parents, and I said, hey, this is the kid from the crash. I remember I had hot chocolate with Pat Chapman, and we talked, and I warmed my hands on against you know, this like kind of potbelly stove, and that's when I'm holding this mug of chocolate in my right hand, and there's a big golf ball sticking out of the top of my hand. I can't even use it anymore. I remember seeing you in, in our house, and at first I didn't know why there was a kid standing in the house with a, with a ski suit on. The rescue people were showing up, and more and more people kept coming in. And the news showed up later that day, too. The plane, groping through the fog, heading for a ski resort in the mountains above Los Angeles, went down yesterday morning. For hours, helicopters searched for the wreckage and survivors. As it turned out, there was only one. 11-year-old Norman Olstad. I just, I tried to wake my dad up, you know, or the pilot. And the skin on my hands kept coming off, you know, bleeding really bad. I never gave up. My dad taught me never to give up. <laughs> Searchers today at last found the wreckage of the tiny plane and the bodies. And Norman Olstad left the hospital with his mother. His parents were divorced. He said he would never... So sad. There was just a kind of a sharp pain too you know you just feel like everything had changed that your life is just totally gone that you knew my father couldn't handle missing the golden moments if it's there and it's right and it's good you do it it's the right moment you got to take advantage of it why you would go up a chairlift in a blizzard freezing wet and hike through the thick powder and then ski crappy powder and find a patch of good powder and then hike out along a creek and get to the highway and hitchhike back up and do it again. It didn't really make sense to me. But for those 25 turns that were good powder, it all made sense. And as I got better, I was able to enjoy it more. And the only way to get better was to struggle through falling. These golden moments he talked about. It's all worth a couple good turns. It's the magic. My son is and was very much like me, afraid, very cautious. Uh, had a lot of mountain fits, throwing poles and screaming and crying. And hated me like I hated my dad. I had to be willing to let golden moments go, you know, 
perfect day of surf, perfect for him, and he's just not going to do it, and you have to let it go, and you know it's gone. And you, you know, to me, it kills me, but I have to do it. But part of it is uh, letting them go, and have to have faith there'll be another one that comes along. <laughs> Falling was produced by Bob Carlson and Kristen Zilm for KCRW's Unfictional. Norman Olstead's book about the crash is called Crazy for the Storm. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Whenever the seatbelt signs are illuminated, you must return to your seat and fasten your seatbelt. We recommend that you keep your seatbelt fastened at all times while seated in case of unexpected turbulence. Even when planes perform perfectly, things don't always go according to plan. In September of 2012, on a sunny day in west suburban London, a man was found dead in the middle of the street with no identification. BBC correspondent Rob Walker followed along with the police in the investigation of the incident that started on a plane and ended up spanning two continents and eight countries. This is Portman Avenue. It's a suburban street in West London, pretty much identical to all the other streets around here. Lots of neat front gardens and carefully tended hedges. But this quiet street is the starting point for a mystery that began right here, outside number 22, on a September morning 16 months ago. It was a sunny day. It was hot, in fact. Being it was a Sunday morning, I was having a lay-in, of course. It was a hot, sunny day, and we were planning to have a barbecue. It was 7.42 in the morning, because I always check the time when I wake up, see whether the kids have woken up earlier or anything like that. My name is James. Uh, I've lived down this street for 30 years. I'm Claire Watson, and I've lived in Portman Avenue for 14 years. Santina Watson, and I've lived here 15 years. Claire's mum. My name's Lizzie Calf, and I've lived on Portman Avenue for 10 years. Massive, massive bang that we heard. And the next thing I can remember is my brother said to me, Claire, he said, you need to wake up. He said, there's a man in the street and he's dead. We opened the curtains, and there's this guy laying right there on the pavement. Hello, police emergency. Hello, we've just been on to church down Portman Avenue in Mortlake and we've come across what looks like uh, a dead body. It may be a hoax, but uh, we thought we ought to let you know. It looks like blood. Very extraordinary. It looked like there was no face left. His um, head had split open. We thought, first of all, that he had been bludgeoned, murdered, in fact. So there's blood in, what, near, near to the, the body, or what, what you think yeah, might be the body? Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll be there within minutes. So we, uh, we're on our way. I'm Jeremy Alsop. I'm a detective sergeant at Richmond Police Station, which is part of the Met Police. My first thoughts when I looked across the road was it looked worse, worse than like a shooting. The officer that was first there had primarily searched the body and found a mobile phone and a SIM card that we looked at, and it was of a 
SIM card that we hadn't noticed or didn't recognise the provider. And also the gentleman had some Angolan currency in his pocket. None of it added up. African guy, African-appearing male, tissue in his ears, which we could see. And apparently, although I didn't see it, he had green grease over his clothing. The noise, when I was at university, somebody fell from the 20th floor and the noise was described as um, a door being dropped from a height. And that's what it sounded like. When I saw the body and the way it was laying, um, the immediate thought that comes to my head was he's fallen out of a plane because of the thud I'd heard and because previously there's been incidents in this area where stowaways have fallen out of planes. We're in a flight path. I saw them keep looking up at the sky, in fact, and that's how we realised. I think it's a bit of silence, really, just people looking up and then it's sort of everyone thinking the same thing, looking down, looking at the gentleman again. Some checks were done with the airport and it just so happens he had Angolan currency and at that very time a BA flight had been going overhead to land at Heathrow from Luanda in Angola. And yet yeah, the penny dropped and people just looking, looking up thinking, oh, this is awful. So we know this was someone who'd stowed away in the undercarriage of a flight coming from Angola and then fallen into this street as the wheels were lowered on approach to landing. There have been around a dozen cases of people stowing away on flights to London since the late 1990s, but only two of those have survived. So the question is why he took this extraordinary risk and, of course, who he was because he had no identity documents on him, no passport, and his face had suffered horrendous injuries on impact. So that was the first challenge for the British authorities. My name's Kiri. I am a technician within the mortuary. We are the ones that reconstruct the bodies to try and make them look as they did in life and try and make them look normal again, which this poor guy obviously didn't when he came in. With this gentleman, I think I reconstructed from inside out in as much as through the skull to try and pack the face out a little bit. In this kind of case, when you, when you have someone like that, what clues are there to you as to what they used to look like? None at all. Um, sometimes you can get a passport photo or you can get a recent photo to work with. Of course, in this case, you had, there was no ID documents no. or anything? No, there was nothing with this poor lad. Uh, I put him to what I thought he may look like. Even I was shocked when that photograph was sent to me. That it's... Um picture of the gentleman now after he's had his post-mortem his face has been reconstructed and he's certainly recognizable he's got a very nasty scar which has been stitched up across his forehead but I would have thought that anyone seeing that who knew this gentleman would say yeah I know that person so he looks like he's in his mid-twenties he's got a little bit of beard on his chin otherwise apart from that he's he's clean shaven he's got quite closely cropped hair he has got quite a distinctive tattoo on on his left arm. That's what we're looking at now. To me, it looks like a Z and a G, just above his um, left elbow. I mean, it could possibly be the initials of his name. It could be. But at the moment, that's all we've got. Working on the principle, he was from Angola because of the currency, the telephone having an African SIM card, and the fact that the BA flight was flying overhead. And it's provided all that information to the Angolan authorities to see whether they can tell us who he is. It may be he's never identified. 
the best lead I think we have is his mobile phone, which unfortunately we can't access because it's locked. And we need a code from that service provider. So another thing we've asked for is for the Angolan authorities to approach the phone company and say, look, how do we unlock this phone? And that will probably provide our best lead. And have you heard anything back from Not that? Not yet, no. So frustrating. Very frustrating, yes. That's a VA. They all come in from the east, flying into the wind. Funny enough, when the incident happened, the poor guy fell from the plane, I kept looking up, you know, thinking, is somebody else going to drop out that undercarriage, you know? And I thought of that guy. Other people did as well because they put flowers down for him. We put a rose there and some other people put lilies and there were other small bunches of flowers. Somebody um, wrote a poem. I can't remember the words of it, but it was like the man that fell to earth or something. If they can't identify him and if he's, you know, buried over here, in, then his family are never going to know what happened to him. Well, I've just had a call and uh, there's been a breakthrough, it appears. We know that the stowaway's Angolan phone was locked, but I've now been told that the police found a second SIM card tucked inside the pocket of his jeans. So I'm heading back to see Detective Alsup of the Metropolitan Police. Detective, what can you tell me about what's happened? What's happened is I'm, I'm now in possession of um, a telephone number where he's shared a text message with, some stored telephone numbers in his address book, only seven, and some last numbers called. The interesting thing is one of the numbers stored in his address book and the number where there's been a swapping of text message is a Swiss number. So that gives me a potential lead. And so have you called that number yet? I have tried to call that number. Unfortunately, it just rings out. I'm not able to leave a message or speak to anyone. It might be it's an old card, an old number, and I don't get any answer at all. I've come now to an airfield in Surrey, about uh, an hour or so outside London. This is a, a decommissioned Boeing 747. This is how he would have got onto the plane, climbing up into the wheel well, and now inside. And uh, already you get an idea of just how cramped it is in here. He would have had to find a place in which to wedge himself. And as the plane took off, the wheels would have retracted into this space, taking up most of it. So I can't help wondering what started to go through his mind at that point. The temperature would have been plummeting fast. The oxygen in the air would have becoming less and less. And I wonder whether at that point he realized that he'd made a terrible mistake, that there was no way out. There was no turning back. I'm back with the Metropolitan Police because there's been another breakthrough in the case. I'm here once again with Detective Sergeant Jeremy Alsop. So, Detective, what can, what can you tell us? Well, the latest is, I think last time we spoke, I mentioned about a SIM card that was found in the gentleman's pocket. The interesting thing about it was one of the calls was a Swiss mobile number. Now, the few times I did try ringing that number, it just rang out. But out of the blue, last week, that number rang me while I was sat at work one evening. I answered the phone and spoke to a lady who told me that she was half Swiss, half English, so she spoke perfectly good English as a young lady. 
He said that there was a stowaway and that he basically that he'd fallen out of the plane. It was quite a strange call because at first it seemed clear to me she knew nothing about what I was talking about and she was sort of saying, well, why are you asking me? Why would I know about this? I don't understand about a stowaway. What do you mean? I didn't really understand what he was talking about. But as soon as he said that the plane came from Angola, I knew straight away who it was. And it was slightly distressing, almost without any warning whatsoever. She sort of snapped. She knew who this guy was and she started to cry and she said, I know who this person is, I know who this person is. I know who it is. I know who it is. And I cried. What she told me was, in 2010, she was living in South Africa with her family. Now, whilst they were there, they employed a housekeeper, a stroke gardener. And it's this person, the girl from Switzerland believes, is the stowaway. A man whose body was found in a street in Mortlake in West London after falling to the ground from the undercarriage of a plane has been identified. He was Mozambican national Jose Matata. His identity was established from a SIM card found in his jeans. My name is Jessica, Jessica in English. I was a former employer of Jose Matada. Joseph had a really hard life and uh, he used to confide in me when we were gardening. <laughs> and his dad died of an illness, so he's probably five or six at this point. After his father dying, there were floods in Mozambique in his area. He told me they were, I mean, scavenging for food, but in water. <laughs> what kind of person was Jose? How would you describe him? He had a really soft manner about him. He was straightforward. He didn't talk much, but if he did talk, it was meant something. He wasn't afraid of much. I don't think I've ever really seen him afraid. We talked about music as well. That was something he was interested in. I made him listen to Manu Chao one day. Me gusta la montaña, me gusta tu. And um, he used to love like, the acoustic and the music behind it. He used to say that uh, that's our music. He was really a free spirit and light spirited. It was lovely to have him around. This is where the story gets more complicated, because as we talked, it started to become clear that the relationship between Jose and Jessica was much closer than just that of a boss and her employee. Well, he converted to Islam, so he was a Muslim, and uh, I'm a convert to Islam, I'm a Muslim. After he finished working for me, we traveled together. I went with him to Mozambique, we, we grew very close to one another. I was trying to help him or find work for him. Also, I cared for him and he was really like my family. When I came back to Europe, the first thing I did when I came out of the plane was send money to him. So I sent him quite a lot of money at this point so that he could follow through all the steps which are needed to obtain the visa. I was willing to help him come to Europe if that was what he wanted. 
But the problem for Jose was that he had little prospect of getting a visa legally. So Jessica says he turned to a corrupt official in Mozambique who promised to get him false papers. Unfortunately, the person that he entrusted in these official offices just left him standing there. Like They said, come back another day, but when he came back, that person had disappeared with all the money and there was no hope for him because he'd lost that money. So Jose Matada now decided to try a different route. He travelled from the Mozambican capital Maputo back to South Africa and then, a few months later, overland through Botswana and Zambia to Angola. At this point, Jessica says, newly married and pregnant, she didn't have the means to help him. When he just arrived in Angola, he called me and uh, he said that he was going to Luanda and he asked me if I could send him some money at that point, but I didn't have any money to send him. I told him to take it easy, to find a place, ask around, try and find work. But then, obviously, I don't know what happened after that. And this is where the trail goes cold, because this last phone call between Jose and Jessica was just a few days before he stowed away on the plane. Jessica only realised what had happened when the British police contacted her. I was in shock. I was eight months pregnant at this point, so I just, um, I just lied down for about 48 hours and I didn't move. I tried not to cry too much. I didn't want to lose my baby, but I was really deeply upset. I just thought, oh, Joseph, what have you done? Why did you get into that plane? Why weren't you more patient? Well, this is where Jose Matada has been buried. Twickenham Cemetery in West London and at this point in the early English summer everything is a, a deep lush green and there's a, a mass of wildflowers that have sprung up between the graves. The police here in London have been in touch with officials in Mozambique but have been told that they found no trace of Jose and that means that as far as we know his family are still not yet aware of what's happened to him. I know the tattoo he had on his arm, he had a G and a Z, and the Z stood for Zuse, and that's how his mum used to call him, so it was Jose, but she used to call him Zuse. <laughs> and I also know he's got a brother living in Maputo. So far, they haven't found him yet. Yeah, I thought about the parents of that person. I thought, as a mother myself, how I would feel not knowing, just maybe even hoping that he had got a better life somewhere else and potentially they might even feel that, you know, they're waiting for a letter or waiting for a phone call, waiting for something. And, of course, now they're never going to get anything.
Well, it's now 15 months since Jose Matada's body was found in Portman Avenue, and we've traveled to Mozambique because there's been a new development. We've been told that his family have come forward and identified themselves to the authorities here. So we're heading out to the outskirts of the capital, Maputo, to meet them. So you can see immediately that this is one of the poorest parts of the city. Just making our way along a, a dirt track filled with potholes. And there's a big pool of stagnant water here. We're making our way around. All of the houses here are just single rooms packed quite tightly together with uh, flimsy looking corrugated iron roofs held down with bits of rocks and stones. And this looks like the family just up here waiting for us. Bon dia. Pleased to meet you. I'm Rob Walker from uh, BBC Radio. Pleased to meet you. Okay. So we've got uh, Jose's mother here, um, Eugenia, who's come from uh, her village about 800 kilometers outside of Maputo to meet us, and also Jose's elder brother, Paulino. So thank you very much to, to both of you for welcoming us here and also our condolences on the loss of your, of your brother and your son. So what I wanted to ask you first was, how did you hear that Jose had, had died? The first time we heard was through a newspaper here called Vedad. It said a Mozambican man named Jose Matada, who had been in Angola, had fallen from a plane and ended up in London. I was shocked. It was a huge feeling, knowing he'd already been dead for some time. An overwhelming feeling. When was the last time you, you heard from him? I thought he was in South Africa. The last time I heard from him was June 2012. After that, when I tried to call him, I, I couldn't get through. I called others who knew him there, but they said he's disappeared. I didn't expect him to have gone to another country. I just thought he'd suddenly appear here one day, or he would call. Why do you think he tried to stow away on a plane? Do you have any idea at all? I don't know what to say. I don't know if he was going after that woman, his boss. I, I don't know. But when I heard he had died, I found a SIM card of his here that had messages with declarations of love on it. And he'd also given me a phone. When I switched it on, I saw a message that said, Jose loves Jessica. He would say when he came here to visit that he was seeing someone there in South Africa, but he didn't say who it was. He said he had a white girlfriend. So when I saw that saying, Jose loves Jessica, I got the idea that maybe it was her. I don't know what to think about what Paulino has told us. Jessica said that she loved Jose like a brother, nothing more. But perhaps in Jose's mind, there was more to it than that. I suppose it's something that we'll never know now. So here in the house, Paulino has kept all of Jose's things. It's a, a simple brown suitcase and inside he's, he's taking out one by one the items. There's a, a white tracksuit, a, a pair of bright white trainers, handkerchief and trousers, a shirt. He was always expecting Jose to come back one day, and uh, still now he hasn't, uh, he hasn't thrown out any of those things. 
My heart pains me so much, especially when I remember the clothes Zuse used to wear. I am crushed. I feel helpless. Why? Why? Why, my son? And I am struggling since Zuse died. He was the one who was helping me. I have nothing. I have absolutely nothing. When you contacted the Mozambican authorities here in Maputo, was that because you were hoping that there would be a way for Jose's body to be brought back to Mozambique? He should have been buried in our village, Mamboni, next to his father, next to his great uncles, his aunts, and next to my other two children who died. But we have no money to bring his body home. His father died a long time ago. But even though we are poor, I had my children. That's what I had. That's the only consolation I had. This is the beach just a short walk from his brother's house where Jose came to spend time with his friends and actually there's a, a group of young men kicking a ball about on the sand this afternoon and uh, maybe that's how him and his friends used to, used to pass the time. What sticks in my mind is what we don't know and now we'll never know. And that's what made Jose take that final and fatal decision to get on the plane. Was he desperate to get to Europe and get Jessica's help in finding a job to send money back to his mother, to his family? Or was it that he was in love with Jessica and that was what was, was pushing him to take such a desperate step? Maybe it was a spur of the moment thing. Maybe he met someone by chance who told him, give me a certain amount of money, give me whatever you have and I'll get you on board a plane and you'll be in Europe within a matter of hours. And he took that decision on the spur of the moment. We'll never know that, of course, now, but what we do know for sure is that Jose saw no future for himself here in Mozambique. He was desperate, you know, I would have welcomed him in. to Twickenham Cemetery in West London on a bitingly cold December morning. The wildflowers between the graves have been replaced with a thin carpet of leaves and there's nothing to mark the grave here. It's just a small patch of brown earth. Uh, some clumps of grass have started to grow over it now. There's no headstone, nothing with his name on, nothing giving his date of birth. 1985. He died here in London just a few miles from this spot on the 9th of September, 2012, the morning after the man who his fell 27th to Earth birthday. was produced by Rob Walker for a program called Assignment on the BBC's World Service.
All passengers and cabin crew should now be seated with their seatbelts securely fastened. The cabin lights will remain dim for landing. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today's episode was produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk. The program is curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communications service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound is also provided by the Logan Theater in Chicago's Logan Square. Movies screening in January include Duck Soup, A Fish Called Wanda, Annie Hall, and many more. There's more information at thelogantheater.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded by EZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. <laughs>